Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Preferred Networks is, without question, the brightest star in the constellation of Japanese AI startups. They've attracted about $130 million in venture funding and have grown to more than 130 people over the past few years. Of course, if you don't follow AI, you might not have heard about them at all. But they are the technology behind Toyota's driverless cars, some of Funok's industrial robots, many cutting edge applications in other verticals, and as a side project, they also built Japan's most powerful commercial supercomputer. It's an interesting team, to say the least. And today we sit down and talk with Daisuke Okunohara, Preferred Network's technical co founder. We talk about how Preferred Networks got started and got to scale, and he also shares his challenges and strategies of trying to maintain the company's experimental and engineering culture as it grows larger and monthly revenue pressures increase. Daisuke also talks about his time at Google. How Japanese AI stacks up to China and the US, and why he's convinced that their biggest competition is going to come from somewhere you would never expect it. But you know, Daisuke tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So I'm sitting here with Daisuke Okunohara, the co founder and executive vice president of Preferred Networks. Japan's leading and probably most innovative AI startup. So, thanks for sitting down with me today.、Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> so, Preferred Networks talks a lot about the importance of edge heavy computing.、Mm-hmm. So, can you explain exactly what edge heavy computing is and why it's important? Cloud computing is one of the most important trends in the IT area, and、uh, most people believe that、uh, most computations or operations should be done at the data center or a cloud site. And it's okay if we deal with the virtual information, but、uh, when it comes to solve the real world problems like、uh, operating a robot, robots or autonomous driving. Uh, we need to process the、uh, data at the、uh, edge side or cl- near to the device. So, so, just so I make sure I understand it correctly,、mm-hmm. edge heavy computing is important because of the, the latency, of how quickly. Yeah, and、uh, reliability. Ah, right, right, because you won't always have connectivity. Yeah, current internet is not、uh, reliable to use for the、uh, mission critical tasks. Okay. So, it's really a trade off between that, the latency、mm. versus the amount of computing power、yeah. you have. So, if you can wait for the results,、mm. it's great to compute in the cloud. Yeah. But the closer to real time,、mm. the more important edge computing is. Yes. All right, that makes a lot of sense. But it isn't the promise of big data that you need like huge data sets.、Mm-hmm. So, When you're using edge heavy computing, do you still send all the information to the cloud for analyzing later, or do you generally try to make self contained systems? Our goal is to extract the information at the edge site and only send the essential information to the data center or other place. 
So we do not ignore the data center or cloud, but when there are many devices, we cannot send all data to the cloud and we need to process the most of the computation at the edge side. Okay. So it's just a more clear separation of, of training data and execution data. In, yeah. In the current status, uh, training requires a much more computation power. So we need to train the model at the cloud site and the operation execution or inference are done at the edge site. Okay. Now preferred networks is involved in AI applications ranging from like automotive and factory automation, life sciences, network security, and I want to talk about all of those in a little bit. Okay. But before that, I want to talk a little about you. Oh. <laughs> so, before you got your PhD, you were an intern at Google in San Francisco. Yes. How did that happen? Uh, at that time, I studied uh, natural language processing. And um, uh, many of my friends started working at Google. I was also uh, interested in how Google solves the problem and how the people in the Google working so that uh, they could produce uh, many excellent products. So did you, um, did you apply to Google in San Francisco from Japan or did you apply to Google Japan and they uh, said, you need to work with this group in San Francisco? Actually, the, I applied to the Google Japan, but uh, at that time, the Google Japan did not have uh, enough resource to accept the uh, intern members. So internship students went to the San Francisco. Okay. So it sounds like you had a real passion for AI before you started working with Google. Mm-hmm. So what did you take away from that internship? Before uh, working at uh, Google, I did not imagine that uh, how AI can be used for solving uh, many problems. For example, the search engine, machine translation, image recognition, speech recognition, and so on. So many products and services use uh, machine learning as an essential tool. That's interesting because I think in a lot of technologies, Japan is very strong in academic research, mm-hmm. but tends to be weaker in creating new products and bringing new products to market, mm-hmm. not just AI. Yeah, I think Japanese is a, a bit conservative, and uh, they hesitate to do the different things. In my opinion, that it comes from the Japan is a monoculture. All people speak Japanese and uh, spend the same expenses during the schools and maybe in the companies. So it is very hard to start new things. I think that diversity is very important to bring a new product or features. Yeah. It makes sense working with Google, you understood the importance of, of practical applications of AI. Mm. But then when you came back to Japan, mm. you went back into university. Uh, actually, the, I started my original company, preferred infrastructure, PFI. I did a research at school daytime, and uh, I did a business maybe the, at night or at the morning. So I did spend uh, these two <laughs> Okay. 
Well, that's right, because preferred networks was spun out of preferred infrastructure. Yeah. So you started preferred infrastructure while you were in college. Yes. Why did you decide to spin out uh, a new company out of preferred infrastructure? Because it it focuses on the same kind of technologies, right? Yes. Preferred infrastructure focus is not using uh, AI in the real world. And we had very uh, good business and uh, uh, business was growing. So it was uh, difficult to focus on two things, the current business and uh, a very different business on AI and IoT. Therefore, uh, we decided that uh, it is better to separate the company into uh, groups so that each group can focus on the one thing. Okay, so if I understand, preferred infrastructure is more general AI, and preferred uh, networks is more applications and IoT? Yeah, preferred infrastructure, the main business is to uh, sell uh, search engines or recommendation engine. And the main customers are media companies, and the main data are techist. Okay, so preferred networks is the one that has a more general mission to bring AI to different sorts of uh, industries. Yes, and another difference is a preferred infrastructure original company did not uh, raise the money from the partners or venture capitals at all. Okay, let's talk applications. Okay. And some of the things you're working on. So one of the most exciting projects is your collaboration with Toyota mm-hmm. and their focus on autonomous vehicles. Mm-hmm. And you've been working with them for three, three, four years now. And they just yes. recently invested $95 million into preferred networks to accelerate that research. So tell me about what you're doing with Toyota and the self-driving Prius. We tried to apply the AI technologies, especially the deep learning and the related technologies and there are so many problems in the autonomous driving, as you know. In our company, we have uh, several teams to solve the problems in the autonomous driving. One of the things I thought was most interesting about your approach is that the cars are actually collaborating with each other in the demonstration I saw. And I, I haven't seen that approach taken by uh, Google or Uber. Do you think that that sort of collaboration between autonomous vehicles is going to be something that becomes more important in the future? I want to clarify the demonstrations. So in the demonstrations, uh, each car doesn't share the information. They only share the knowledge or model, doesn't communicate each other in real time. We hope collaboration will reduce the accidents, but uh, currently uh, it is difficult to implement in the actual cars. And and so the challenge, again, is just the amount of time it takes to collaborate with other cars? It takes too long? Yeah, and uh, also the reliability. If most cars are equipped with uh, communications devices, then it is okay to use a communication tool, but uh, it will take uh, more time. Earlier this month in America, we saw the first fatal accident from an autonomous vehicle. And Uber has announced they're they're scaling back on their testing. A lot of other companies have have announced they're going to scale back their testing. 
Has that accident changed preferred networks' plans for development or rollout, or is that accident change Toyota's plans on how autonomous vehicles will be developed and rolled out in Japan? We also consider that this accident is very important, but currently we think that our current plan do not need to change, but we need to avoid uh, such accident. I think that especially in the city side, uh, it is very difficult to make the model accurate enough to avoid uh, any such a fatal accident. It will take more years than the autonomous driving system in the highway. For the past couple of years, American companies have been getting a lot of press attention about the advanced self-driving functions. And, mm-hmm. and, and I've noticed in Japan, the tests for self-driving vehicles have been very, very controlled. Mm. They're, they're, they tend to be on a very specific route. They're, they're, they're safe. Mm. And American companies are more likely to do real-world road testing. Yeah. Is that because the American companies' research is further advanced, or is Japan just more conservative about how they want to test autonomous vehicles? I think uh, both. Current autonomous driving technologies is uh, uh, largely depends on the success of the DARPA challenge. But uh, when it comes to today's autonomous driving system, which heavily use uh, deep learning technologies, especially image recognition, I think that many new startups compete each other, not only in Japan, but also the China and the EU. But I think that uh, some of the companies in the U.S. have uh, great technologies. How do you think autonomous vehicles will roll out? Do you think that there'll be more of a focus taken away from city driving and placed more in rural environments or long-haul trucking on highways? How do you think this technology will progress in the next five or ten years? I think the first automatic driving technology will be appeared in the highway. It is much more a simpler case than the city road case. I think that many companies will provide uh, such a highway first. Okay. In the case of the city, we maybe uh, need uh, some new regulations or some new uh, environment equipment to make sure that the automatic driving system is uh, safe. All right. Mm. Let's talk about the MN1, uh, Preferred Network's private supercomputer. So this is the fastest industrial supercomputer in Japan. Mm. It's 12th fastest in the world. Mm. This is really cool, Mm. but why? What Mm. do you use this for? Uh, To develop uh, new AI applications, we require talented researchers, engineers, plus data, plus uh, computing resources. Is the supercomputer itself used for the AI modeling, or is it mainly a research tool that Preferred Networks is using internally? You currently use uh, this uh, computer resource for the research and the development. Uh, several researchers use this resource to try uh, new ideas or to, uh, develop uh, new models. Also, many developers use uh, this to fine-tune the model or uh, validate the model. Okay. 
Let's talk a bit about Chainer, mm-hmm. your, your open source and distributed deep learning application. Mm-hmm. What kind of applications are other people building with Chainer? By using a Chainer, there are many researchers and developers develop several models. And uh, since and many Japanese companies and researchers first used a Chainer, so there are many uh, products in Japan uh, made by a Chainer. Oh, okay. Yeah, like a speech recognition system or image recognition. Uh, so many uh, products made by Chainer in Japan. Okay. And, and are there international users as well? Yes. Several researchers use uh, Chainer. Uh, Microsoft uh, Cambridge Research Group, they use the Chainer. Because uh, by using a Chainer, the developers can try a very different models. It enables developers to implement uh, new models in intuitive way. So it's people are using it both for research and experimentation yeah. and to create products that are being brought onto the market. Yes. That's fantastic. And I noticed you, we also have a paint chainer, chainer. which is the... Uh, Colors in line yeah. drawings. Is that is that an application or is that just kind of a fun thing you you guys built? Paint China and actually the China itself was not a planned products. Our company has a twenty percent project. We also use uh, this tool and uh, several engineers and researchers try uh, new ideas and develop a new software and uh, develop a new tools. It's the same idea that Google popularized yes. where, where employees can spend 20% of their time working on projects that they're excited about and yeah. they might be able to bring some new product to market. Yes. Okay, and Paint Chainer was yeah. one of those. Yeah, so the Paint Chainer was first developed by one of our engineers, Yonetsuji. At that time, was a, a robotics engineer. He has also in, uh, interested in the, such a painting and artwork. So he just applied neural network model to colorize the line art, and it worked very well from the first attempt. So other members helped him to release the service. So uh, our company supports uh, this activity and tries to sell or marketize uh, this prototype or product to the market. Okay, we'll have to make sure to put links to all of that on the, on the website when the podcast goes live so that uh, our listeners can check this out because it's something you really need to see. It's hard to explain on an audio podcast. <laughs> but it's really interesting. Yeah. Now... Most AI companies tend to try to focus narrowly on a couple of, of key products, mm-hmm. whether it's, it's search or discovery or factory automation. Mm-hmm. But Preferred Networks has gone the other route. Yeah. You guys have gone really wide and are trying to work with as many different industries as possible. Mm. So why did you decide to go wide instead mm. of going narrow? This is uh, one of our, uh, some unique culture. We want to mix uh, different culture or different markets so that uh, we want to make an environment where the new innovations emerge. 
when we visited uh, Silicon Valley and uh, discussed with uh, several venture capitalists, and the venture capitalists said that uh, please focus on the one product <laughs> or one service. But uh, we just denied. And uh, yeah, maybe the, this is not the standard way to do a business. But uh, I think that trying to solve uh, very different problems, then the, maybe the, some new connections are found between the different product or markets. And uh, I think that today we can try a new things with a lower cost. Before, uh, when we, for example, build a new software product, it requires uh, several months or maybe one year with uh, several engineers. But uh, today, we can make new models within one week. Well, I think this is something that it's, it's maybe, maybe not unique to Japan, mm-hmm. but this is something that is very Japan-specific. Mm. A lot of Japanese startups do seem to have this sort of integrator model. Mm-hmm. It seems that a lot of large Japanese companies don't have in-house expertise on new technologies. And whether we're talking about drones or AI, mm. that Japanese companies, they want to reach out and work with new startups rather than trying to develop things mm. internally. But American companies seem to want to do it themselves. Mm. Do you think this will hurt you in the long run? Mm. So in the short run, it seems like a huge advantage because you have access to all of this expertise mm-hmm. and all of this data mm. that Toyota has on, on driving mm. and that uh, Fanuc has on industrial robots mm-hmm. that would take you years and years to try to develop on your own. Mm. But as time goes on, do you see preferred networks staying as kind of an AI specialist as an, and an integrator or do you think that some of those 20% projects mm. will become something that you guys will decide, wait, this is great, this is a product we're going to sell and bring to market? I think we first need to show that uh, this is a product made by uh, AI, so it is a more vertical model. We need to develop library uh, software and solutions for the, each industry. Uh, but uh, when the, uh, we understand that uh, yeah, this is a market, then the, we can focus on the most strongest part. So I think one of the challenges mm. is truly disruptive innovation, something that is really new. Mm. If you take something that's really new to Toyota or Hitachi, mm. they won't want to do it because it's, it's too new and too disruptive. Mm-hmm. So... Do you think there's, there might be a point where Preferred Network says, wait, this, this can change the world and we're going to do it ourselves? There are several difficulties in providing a, such a disruptive technologies. First of all, it is difficult to develop a, such a technologies. So we need enough environment in our company to develop a, such a disruptive technologies. This maybe require a very different thinking style. But uh, I think that we now have uh, enough such uh, environment. And the second difficulty is uh, how to make these technologies accepted by the companies or consumers. But uh, in any way, that we first need to provide uh, this product to the early adopters. When they understand uh, this is a very 
useful, they quickly change the attitude towards the such technologies. And we saw that such changes in the previous 20 years. When the smartphone appears, the first two or three years, many people thought that uh, this is very unique, but I don't need to use it. But within one year, it will become the usage percentage surpass 50%. So when people accept it, the changes are very rapid. There are so many Japanese companies. Japan as a, as a country was really surprised mm-hmm. by that disruption of the, the smartphone. Mm. So do you think that because of that, are big Japanese companies more concerned about disruption? Are they more anxious to do new projects with new technologies than they used to be? They understand uh, the importance of the, such a disruptive technologies, but uh, it is not uh, specific to the Japanese company, but big organizations, it's uh, very difficult to start uh, such a new things because uh, such a new idea is a uh, very fragile and very weak. Uh, let's say that uh, in the main business, several hundred million dollars scale, but uh, when it comes to the new market, uh, market size is very small. Right. So they cannot focus on the, this new market. And the risk is uh, very large. So therefore, they try to find uh, such a new idea or solution outside of the company. So you think that the big Japanese companies are more willing to to try new things, to, to look at new technologies? Yeah, I think so. But it takes time to yeah. accept uh, such technology. Okay. Well, progress is always step by step, right? Yeah. So, so what is Preferred Network's core business model? Are you selling software licenses? Are you selling consulting services? Mm-hmm. Are you selling project implementation? Mm-hmm. Our main core business is providing uh, licenses to the, uh, our customers and also the collaborative research project. This business model depends on the, each market. For example, the Automatic driving or industrial robots or machine tuning and uh, like science or healthcare. In each uh, market, uh, it requires a different business model. So we have a different business model for the each market. Oh, wow, okay. It may be uh, difficult to understand uh, our business and our business model, but... Uh, it seems like you're just, you have a core engineering and technical competence yeah. and you're willing to be flexible mm. in addressing whatever market you can mm-hmm. with that competence. Yeah. As I said, to develop uh, AI products, important thing is uh, how to retain talented people and uh, enough data and uh, enough computing resources. These are three important factors. And uh, I think that since uh, AI development, it requires uh, maybe uh, several hundred uh, different ideas or products. Can, we cannot simplify the, uh, such technology to the one technologies. So is your vision for preferred networks to have like a lot of independent semi-autonomous groups that this is the 
uh, autonomous driving group, and yeah. this is the factory automation group, and mm. they might have different business models. And yeah, different, different business. But the uh, uh, important thing is that the technologies are shared. Programs, code, or data, or model are shared among the teams. Now, that, that is sort of like the engineering dream situation. <laughs> so you're coming from a technical background. I also come from a technical background. Mm. But how do you keep that spirit and philosophy as the company grows larger? So you guys have been scaling up really fast. So how, how many staff do you have now? Uh, 130. So how do you maintain that independence and that philosophy as the company gets bigger? Yeah, we face the problem of the how to scale our teams, and uh, we tried uh, several things. For, for example, uh, we use uh, team management tools, also the communication tools, uh, like a Slack and other tools. We also make sure that each team have uh, enough support from the outside, so we are now going to build several systems so that uh, we can scale more. Okay. But so far, so good. Yes, so far, so good. <laughs> and, uh, Maintaining that philosophy mm. requires a different structure yes. as the company grows larger. Yes. This is a good thing and a bad thing, but uh, co-founders, I and CEO uh, Nishikawa, did not have an uh, experience of working at ordinary companies at all. <laughs> We just <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a good and bad thing. Yeah, yeah. good and bad thing. <laughs> so we, we think that uh, this should work, but uh, our experienced uh, senior people they're from uh, Sony or Walmart. So we discussed about uh, what is the best organizations and the best way to keep our companies. Right. So try to get the best of both sides. Yeah. All right. Um, well. Who do you see as your main competition? In each market, there are different competitors. Especially in the technology side, uh, I benchmarked uh, several research institutions or companies, DeepMind, OpenAI, and many Chinese uh, startups. Mm-hmm. Actually, we discussed with uh, people in the such groups. But uh, when it comes to the business, I think that in the long run, Two competitors are not emerged yet. When uh, new technologies appear, there are uh, new companies, strong companies. So you think that the real AI breakthroughs and your real competitors are not necessarily Google or IBM, but but some new startup that doesn't exist yet? Yeah, yeah, I think these startups will be emerged from a new world. You know, artificial intelligence is a really strange topic. Mm -hmm. Um, So over the last 40 years, Mm. there's been like two opposing forces where we have marketers who want to say that everything is artificial intelligence, right? And any simple algorithm or heuristic, they'll say that's AI. Mm. But on the other hand, we have like academics who keep moving things in the other direction, Mm. who when uh, a computer learns to paint or write music, they'll say, well, that's not really intelligence. Or when the computer becomes the best chess player in the world, to say that that really isn't intelligence. Mm-hmm. So what applications do you think that AI, as it exists today, mm. is really 
good for, and what applications do you think that AI is not really ready for? Currently, the AI, especially the machine learning and the deep learning, is good for the interpolation problem. When it sees a problem in the similar way, then they can solve the problem. But、uh, when it tries to solve the extrapolation problem, it is not good as a human at all. For example, a robot can grab the object if they see the object before. But、uh, when it tries to pick the totally different object, then the, its performance is、uh, very bad. It's a generalization problem, and the machine learning、uh, tries to solve the, this generalization problem over the several ten years, but、uh, still it is、uh, very far from the human capability. Do you think we'll ever see general artificial intelligence, or do you think that's strictly science fiction?、Uh, I think that we can achieve this in the future, but、uh, I'm not sure the when.、Mm. Okay. Let's talk a bit about Japan.、Mm-hmm. I hear a lot that AI research in Japan has fallen behind what's happening in the U.S. and in China.、Mm. Do you think that's true? There are many AI researchers in Japan, but、uh, they are not focused or not organized. Japanese government tries to organize several new AI-focused institutes, but especially in the U.S. That there are a very strong IT companies, and they have、uh, enough resources to start a very challenging、uh, project. Is the problem what you mentioned before about American companies like Google being very good at taking technology and making products,、mm. and Japanese companies falling behind in that area,、mm. or do you think the core research in Japan is a little behind? We can. Read papers. We can also share the programming code. So I think the gap is shrinking every year. Three or five years ago, the only very strong research groups did great research. But today, thanks to the archive and GitHub and Twitter and many related social networks, we can share the research. Real time and、uh, without any barriers. Okay. So I think many researchers, especially the young researchers, now publish releasing a、uh, new research. Okay. So so in a sense that from country to country, if that core research gap exists, it won't be as important because everyone has access to the same、yeah. research. So it is not specific to the AI,、yeah. but、uh, today. Uh, such an open research changes environment of the research. What about so you have a particularly strong background in NLP, natural language、yeah. processing? How related to human language is that? So, for example, research done in the U.S. on an English datasets and research done in China on Chinese datasets,、mm. is that applicable to NLP in Japanese? Recently, the new neural network-based tools, machine translation or speech recognition, enable us to develop tools independent of the languages. I believe that in the near future, the, such a language gap will decrease. Okay. Well, listen, Daisuke. Before we wrap up,、mm. I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question,、mm-hmm. and that is. If I gave you a magic wand、mm. and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, 
anything at all. The education system, the way people think about risk, the legal system, anything at all to make it better for startups and innovation in Japan. What would you change? I want to use this magic that people have the ability to learn new things, even if they are adults. Uh, today, I think that we need to learn the new things every day, every year. But、uh, people, maybe not specific to Japan, but、uh, people tend to not learn new things. Do you think that's because it's difficult to learn new things as you get older, or do people just not want to? They don't try? I think that, yeah, they just didn't try. Current education system is a very Not flexible.、Uh, people studied only during the school, and after graduating the school, that they don't want to learn or they don't try to learn new things. But uh, today, uh, there are many new ideas, or technologies, or new problems. So people have to study、uh, every day. Not only、uh, English or such a computer science, but also need to study、uh, new things. You know, I think that's true. And you know, I think that's true worldwide, not just、mm. Japan. Our, our whole idea of how we educate people、yeah. is just okay, you go to elementary school so you can get into high school,、mm. you graduate to high school, you can go to university,、mm. you get good grades at university so you can get into the company, and then you're done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that just it isn't true anymore.、Yeah. Maybe it never was, but it certainly doesn't seem true now. And、uh, I also feel that、uh, learning does not mean that、uh, remembering、uh, some new rules or、uh, some new formula or、uh, some new historical event. Human can acquire new skills. This idea comes from the AI research. Remembering、uh, something is a very small portion of the intelligence.、Yeah. And、uh, for example, the, when we study the reinforcement learning, the, we found that the ability of the learning to learn is、uh, very important. But、uh, in the school, the, we explicitly learn the, such as skills, learning to learn. That's a really good point. I, I think there's maybe like kind of three different steps to it.、Mm. So, as we were saying, just learning new information and historical facts,、mm. that's easy and people will do that.、Mm. And, and the second level is kind of acquiring new skills. Yeah.、Um, like learning a new programming language、yeah. or, and, and some people will do that. But I think the third step, and what's really hard、mm. as people get older, is learning new behaviors. Yeah. And, and changing the way you interact with people in the world. Yeah, and changing the、uh, habits or customs. Yeah, this is very important, but it is not taught by school. Yeah, but that's, I, I think you almost, I think you really need a magic wand to make that happen. <laughs> It's a deep part of kind of human nature, I think.、Yeah. We don't like to change. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I imagine that if, for example, most people can learn a new uh, programming languages, and、uh, not only the programmers, but、uh, most people can use a program to develop a new software, new customized tool, then the many problems are solved. Or if they can learn、uh, new languages, English, 
or Chinese or other languages, then they can directly read other countries' news articles or new opinions. So uh, our ability is uh, very restricted. Maybe this comes from the, our style of the thinking, but uh, we need to change. Yeah, so be willing to, to acquire new information and new skills and new behaviors as throughout your life. Yeah. Excellent. Hey, well, listen, Daisuke, thank you so much for sitting down with uh, me. Thank you very much. <laughs> and we're back. Let's talk a bit about what I call the integrator strategy for technology startups. The integrator strategy is when a startup focuses on a core technology and then sells services around that technology to companies in a wide variety of different industries. Each engagement results in a completely new product tailored to that client and to that industry. Preferred Networks is clearly using the strategy right now as is our guest from last month, the drone integrator Blue Innovation. Now, the integrator strategy is very different from just simply selling a product to a wide range of verticals. Salesforce and Oracle, for example, sell to companies in almost every market, and there is often a lot of integration involved in the rollout of their product. However, these are product companies. Everything they do is geared to increase the sales and penetration of their platform. Integrator startups are producing completely different products with each engagement. And it's easy to see the appeal of this integrator strategy. Since these projects are long-term and involve large clients, you have fantastic PR exposure and very steady revenues. And best of all, perhaps... You're not locked into a specific product. You have access to the best domain knowledge across a huge variety of industries, and you can focus not only on perfecting your core technology, but experimenting with a lot of different business models. In this way, you know that you'll have the best business model and the most advanced technology to pivot onto a specific product when the time comes. When the time comes. But are integrator startups able to make that pivot? It's incredibly hard to give up on the steady revenues and the great publicity to bet the company on this one new thing. It's, it's not impossible by any means, but I don't know of any startup who has successfully pulled it off. That doesn't mean it hasn't happened, of course. And if you know of an example, drop me an email. I'd love to talk to you about it. The other challenge with the integrator strategy is that it makes it very hard to expand globally. For example, I talk with a steady stream of American AI integrator startups who want to expand into Japan. When I ask what they do, a typical company will give examples from finance, energy, travel, and e-commerce and assure me that we can work with almost any industry. Well, yeah, sure. If you have someone willing to spoon-feed you the domain knowledge and take a chance on you, I'm sure you can. But why should they do that? The integrator strategy requires deep relationships and deep trust. And when you go into a new market, you don't have that. You lack not only the commitment to the Japanese market, 
but to a specific product in a specific industry. And you're asking for someone to risk their career or maybe at least risk their promotion by selecting your company for a long-term collaborative engagement. It's a hard sell, particularly when there's local competition pursuing the integrator strategy. And there's always local competition. But still, this wave of AI is new. A lot of real research has moved out of the university labs and is now being done by AI startups. This might represent a fundamental shift in how AI research is done and how significant projects are brought to market. And if this is a true sea change, then there's no question that Preferred Networks is far ahead of everyone else in this race. If you've got an opinion about artificial intelligence or the integrator strategy, Daisuke and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show120 and tell us about it. And when you come by the site, you'll see all the links and notes that Daisuke and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for telling people interested in Japanese startups and innovation about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.